they were doing a, a scan and they're like, we can't find your baby's bladder. They cannot accurately determine the size of the baby from a sonogram at 36 weeks. I was like, wait, what are you telling me? <laughs> I was so shocked by the information that he shared. It was mind blowing to me. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Carmen, and I'm a certified breastfeeding counselor. And I'm Ruth Green, an international birth doula. And this is the Having a Baby in China podcast. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. The views expressed here are the personal opinions of individuals and do not necessarily reflect any official stance or recommendation by having a baby in China. Hey, Jacqueline, it's good to see you. Hey, Ruth, good to see you. So we're getting close to finishing the end of our school year. And with that, we're going to be going on summer break, right, Ruth? I think you and your family are leaving in a couple weeks. Yes. For the first time in like three and a half years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And my stomach is like a huge knot. I'm so, so excited. And yet there's just like so many thoughts going through my head. But yeah, at the time of this recording, we leave in two weeks and two days. So wow. Yeah. Exciting. It might even, we might be on the plane by the time you're listening to this. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So we're really excited about that. Yeah. And we're thinking um, here at the Having a Baby in China podcast that we're going to be taking a break over the next couple of months. So we have a couple podcasts lined up for everyone um, and some really great content that we're really excited to share, um, including today's podcast. But yeah, just wanted to give everyone a heads up that we're going to take a little hiatus Yes. I have thought that it would be kind of fun to like do a short episode, you know, from our various travels, but more likely than not, that is definitely not going to happen, <laughs> especially because, you know, we're not traveling with our microphones and everything, but who knows? And when we do get back, we'll have to fill you all in on our adventures around the world with our kids in tow, Jacqueline with your five and us with our four. <laughs> Maybe we can just keep our Instagram feed updated with our exciting summer holidays. Yeah, that's a great idea. We'll definitely have to do that. But before we end the season, we wanted to take some time to answer a few more questions. We're not going to get through all of the questions, but we definitely have a record of them. And, you know, we'll just keep going through them. Uh, so always feel free to write in more questions. We're keeping an active blog of things that people are interested in. So. Tonight's episode will be all about some more questions that you guys submitted. Okay, for our first question, are all prenatal exams necessary and which ones are absolutely necessary and would you recommend? So this is going to vary so much on the individual, the couple, and also their physical condition, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So somebody might actually want to be doing exams before they ever even get pregnant, especially if they have a family history of something or they're just curious. But once you become pregnant, again, there's still a few things to consider. So if you actually do not know when you conceive, like if you're not fairly certain within a few days, perhaps you have like an irregular cycle or PCOS or something like that, you actually are going to want to get an exam in the first 
eight weeks because sonograms taken before eight, nine, you know, max 10 weeks are really ideal for getting a dating scan. So at the very beginning, all fetuses kind of grow at the same rate for the first couple of weeks. But just like we have adults that might be only like 50 or 60 kilograms, and it can also be healthy to be like 70, 80, or 90 kilograms, depending on your body, there's a variance in babies as well. So after those first couple weeks, you're going to have babies that are going to grow a little bit slower and some that are going to grow a little bit faster. So in order to get an accurate due date, it really needs to be done in the first couple weeks. And then the next fairly important one, and they might do some of this at that first exam too, is usually done between 11 and 13 weeks. And so that one is going to take like all of the mom's baselines and also some of the fetal baselines. So basically it's going to be a lot of blood tests to see, to see what does your thyroid look like? How is baby growing? And also during this time, they will usually do the quad test, which is called the quad. It used to be called the triple test because it looked for three genetic disorders, but now they've added one. So it's a quad test. So it looks at four fetal chromosomal disorders. So one of those would be Down syndrome. So then, you know, usually there's one done around 16 weeks in the U.S. Often they'll look for gender at this one, but not always. This one, you know, I don't know that I would say like what's important or what's not important, but this one doesn't have like any really big things that they're looking at. The next big exam would be usually between like 20 and 24, 25 weeks, and that's going to be the anatomy scan where they want to look at how like the heart is developing and the bladder and all of these different things. Sometimes some hospitals will prefer to push that one off a little bit because the one after that is the blood glucose test. So this one is looking specifically Mm, for gestational diabetes, of course. And so some hospitals will kind of do this all in one big test, like come in having fasted and they'll take your blood and then they'll make you drink the sugar water and then they'll do like the anatomy scan while you're waiting. So they'll kind of make it like one big package, but it also takes like several hours and other hospitals will kind of divide this up. So so after that, we're really just looking at how is mom doing and how is baby doing, like kind of tracking the progress. Usually after about 32 weeks, you go every two weeks. And after 36 weeks, you go every week. And some people will say, why do I have to go so frequently at the end? Well, first off, you don't have to, right? You get to choose what you go to and what you don't go to. What they're looking at in those appointments are your blood pressure and your urine. And if either of those are showing out of the normal range, then they're going to be looking for preeclampsia. And the thing about preeclampsia is that it's still worldwide a really big problem. And it comes on really, really suddenly. And so that's why at the end of pregnancy, they want you to go like every single week. Again, you have the choice of how often you go, but those would be kind of the minimum exams that I think pretty much any doctor would recommend that you go to for sure. Again, you know, there's different preferences that people have and there's different systems around the world. So if you're in another country that has a kind of midwifery care style, then they might even like come to your home and just do a blood pressure and urine test at your house. But unfortunately, like that's not an option here in China. Really, the only option is to go into the clinic or into the hospital for these exams. So again, it's up to you what you go to, but that I would say that those are kind of your, your big ones. You know, if you know when you conceived, then There's not a whole lot of reason to go before 12 or 13 weeks unless you just want to know about how your levels are, your hormone levels and all of that. And then 
It's really a discussion between you and your doctor and your partner about which tests you want to have done and when. Yeah, like really trying to figure out for you and and your partner, do you want to know all of these things that are not always necessarily guaranteed? Like, you know, you were mentioning like the quad test, like it's not 100% accurate, but sometimes people are like, I need to know. So I can be prepared or or some people are like, it doesn't matter, whatever it is. I'm going to do the same thing either way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's also the concern that like the more tests you do, the more potential things they find. So then the more tests they recommend and the testing can get mm-hmm. a, a bit yeah. more invasive, right? And then there's also like personalities. I mean, I think that I even remember back the first couple, I just kind of was like, yeah, just do the test. Just do the test. I knew the insurance covered it. It created more anxiety in me to have to explain or argue or discuss like why I didn't want a particular test. So I was just kind of like, well, I'm just going to let them do what they want. And then I don't have to deal with communication. (laughs) Right. And then if it comes back positive, then we'll figure out what we want to do next. But I mean, I don't know that that was really the wisest choice. Just fortunately for us, everything came back fine. And so we never even had to discuss whether we would do more tests or not. So again, I don't think that there's one right answer. It's just something that you have to discuss with your partner. Definitely, for sure. I mean, I think when I first got pregnant with my first baby, I'm like, yes, like, we get all these tests. Great. Let's do it all. But I saw that it actually could create a lot of anxiety. For example, the hospital that we were going to for my first, they were doing a, a scan and they're like, you're, we can't find your baby's bladder. Yeah. And that's, you're like, what? And they're like, yeah, we can't find the baby's bladder. So you need to go to a different hospital and maybe they're, they'll have a better scan to be able to see and so then of course I'm like oh my goodness like my baby doesn't have a bladder and you know like versus you know my fourth was with a midwife in the states and just like had minimal tests and like it's I think we've discussed this before where doctors are trained to find and cure diseases or like look for something that's wrong so they can fix it. And they are very well trained to take care of like high risk. The abnormal. Yeah, the abnormal where like midwifery care, they're like, this is normal. Your body is made to, you are made to make a baby and then your baby like grows. So they watch over like general and, you know, like, but basically it's these positive, of course, checking, making sure that there's growth and progress, but trying to keep the the tests to minimal. Yeah. Now, like you said, there's not midwifery care here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're here trying to educate yourself and figure out well what is necessary what what do we need you know we just had a guest share their birth story Jordan would highly recommend listening to Jordan's birth story episode 19 where she was like hey I wanted all the tests because I wanted to know if there was anything wrong that I, I needed to get out of here yeah where I was like it's fine like I saw actually I did agree to get this other test that isn't very accurate, but then it like went made all the medical staff go crazy and like, oh, you have to do, and then I had to get another test and then I had to go in again in the next day. And I was like, 
yeah, that's getting into my own personal story, which <laughs> we'll save for another episode. But yeah. Well, and I do want to give a little bit of caution about how it is really common here for them to recommend a sonogram around 36 weeks, 35, 36 weeks. And I want to give a little bit of caution about that one because there's two things mostly that they are looking for. And one is size. And the truth is they cannot accurately determine the size of the baby from a sonogram at 36 weeks. If you remember, I was saying really Mm -hmm. it's ideal to be doing sizing sonograms before eight weeks. So one concern I have is you're going to get a sonogram and they're going to say baby's too big or too small and then pressure you to an induction that you may or may not have actually needed. And that's going to open, you know, doors for all sorts of anxiety. And then the other thing that they're looking at is the amniotic fluid, which we need to have a whole episode on itself and hopefully with an OB because there's so much discussion about how, not just how accurate their measurements are for the amniotic fluid, but what it actually means. So doctors can look at the numbers and they can get a rough estimate of what the amniotic fluid is. But we don't yet know exactly what that information means and how strongly it is for an induction or not. And so over and over again, I kind of see this pattern where someone goes in for this exam, the sonogram at 36, 37 weeks, and the doctor's like, well, your amniotic fluid is a little bit low, which every time that I've ever heard it, it's not actually been low compared to international standards. And then they are then encouraged to come back the next day and test again. Well, meanwhile, the parents are like freaking out because they're like, oh my goodness, something could be wrong. And so then their their stress level goes way high. So then they go in the next day and their fluid level is higher, right? Just because it's a different technician or maybe they drank more water or whatever it might be, but their blood pressure is now high right? Because they're super stressed out and they didn't sleep well the night before and all that. And so then now they're looking at induction for the blood pressure and it just kind of spirals out of control to where then within a day or two or three, they do go ahead and go with an induction, which again, inductions can be medically necessary and life-saving. So I'm not saying anything against inductions, but it is a very different birth and a much more difficult birth. And so just want to give a little bit of caution about that 36 week sonogram about, you know, what are you going to do with the information that it provides? And think about that before you take the test. Yeah. Again, you know, we're not suggesting to not do any of the tests that your doctor say. Obviously, you need to discuss all that with your own doctor and your partner and maybe a, a doctor from your home country as well just to be able to make informed decisions on which tests are necessary for you and your body and your baby. Yes. And again, depending on your personal situation, you might need more tests Mm -hmm. than others, right? So yeah, we don't know you. We don't know what your body is or what your situation is. So as always, none of this is to be taken as medical advice. Just a few thoughts on our experiences and our information. Yeah. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say. If you want to know more about the prenatal exams, you can purchase our Having a Baby in China, the course. So we have a whole class done by Varia on prenatal exams. 
and what's done at each one. And then we also have a separate class done by Dr. Afnan of United Family Hospital, where he goes into how do you understand the results of different exams? Actually, it's one of my favorite classes. It's really high level thinking, but it was mind blowing to me. Mm -hmm. When we were sitting and recording it, I was like, wait, what are you telling me? (laughs) I was so, so shocked by the information that he shared. So highly recommend the course. We have eight classes and the total is just 199 RMB. So it's incredibly affordable. Yeah. Totally worth it. And you can find that at the Having a Baby in China website. Yeah. Okay, Jacqueline, next question. So what is the effect of alcohol on a baby when breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And this person specifically said, like, if you were to not wait the two hours. So we know that it's commonly suggested that if you have a drink, you know, that one might be okay, but then to wait two hours before you breastfeed again. So what are the risks to the baby if you were to not wait those two hours? This is a a common question that we get a lot in our breastfeeding groups. So yeah, the recommendation is if you're going to drink and breastfeed that you want to do it in moderation. Um, It's not recommended for those who drink heavily. Mm -hmm. Chronic or heavy consumers of alcohol should not breastfeed. And there's not only, I mean, there is some risk to the baby and I'll, I'll mention that in a moment, but like a bigger risk whether you're breastfeeding or not, is that it can inhibit um, your ability to be aware and respond to your your child's mm. needs. Yeah. But for the baby, it's estimated that a baby receives about five to six percent of whatever the parent has consumed. A newborn baby's liver is very immature, and so mm. it will take longer for that baby to be able to eliminate and get it out of its system. And so we definitely want to be more cautious the younger the baby is. A South Korean study was done and their recommendation was like no alcohol in the first month and then like one to two glasses a day of let's say wine, I think is what they were referring to after that one month would be reasonable But some ways that the alcohol affects the baby, there's been a lot of research recently to show that alcohol in the milk actually decreases the intake of milk that the baby will take in a feed. Mm. And it also affects the mother as well. You know, it lowers not only the amount of milk she's producing, but it also delays the milk ejection reflex. which is more more commonly known as letdown. So that's like when the baby latches on and starts sucking, then there'll be like a sudden increase of, you know, milk released from the the mother's breast. If the baby was to unlatch at that time, usually like there's milk spraying or maybe there's not, but yeah, that's the milk ejection reflex. Uh, Alcohol actually decreases that reflex. It also notes that... 
Alcohol should be avoided if a mother is breastfeeding a premature baby, just because again, like with mm. the newborn, their liver and is a little more immature. They're developing, you know, a little bit slower and they're usually behind in their development. So depending on when the baby was born, you definitely want to be a little more careful with the child because they can be more susceptible to getting sickness, but also, you know, like affected by alcohol or even medication that that a mother is taking. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that a mother should like pump and dump. So like I went out for for the evening and enjoyed some drinking. So then I need to pump and dump. But that's not actually how alcohol and breast milk work because the alcohol goes into the blood. Okay. Once your body is able to metabolize the alcohol, then it's no longer in your milk. So generally, as soon as the breastfeeding mom feels neurologically normal again, then the breast milk would be free of alcohol. Okay. So what you're saying is that if mom goes out and drinks, maybe two or three drinks, and then she's like, well, I'll just pump and dump all of that milk and then immediately feed the baby after that, that actually isn't helping anything because the alcohol is still in your bloodstream and therefore like continuing to go into your breast milk. Right. But if she waits the two or three hours, then it will metabolize out of the bloodstream and the breast milk at the same time and she can feed the baby directly. Correct. Now, what about like if she just feels over full, so she feels like she needs to feed the baby, mm. in other words, to avoid engorgement, then she probably should dump, right? Yeah. Uh, so let's say, you know, you're you're planning a fun night out. It would be recommended to feed your baby right before you go out. Mm -hmm. And then like if you're going to be drinking more than two glasses, then maybe you would skip that feed. But because of supply and being comfortable, you would definitely want to pump and dump. But it's not that like, oh, okay, once I get that milk out, then it's safe. Yeah. It's, you still need to wait that a lot of time. Yes. Okay, let me just go back and say a little bit about how alcohol affects the baby. Um, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, alcohol can blunt prolactin response to suckling and negatively affect infant motor development. So okay. this is two different things. One is it affects the mother. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when the baby latches, the hormone prolactin is released which then, you know, like I was saying, can trigger the milk ejection reflex. So that is decreased. Mm -hmm. The alcohol decreases the response to the suckling at the breast and the prolactin okay. release. Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing is the alcohol in the breast milk can affect the baby's motor development. And so that's why American Academy of Pediatrics uh, recommends to minimize and limit alcohol consumption to just an occasional intake. And they actually have a formula. They say like 0.5 grams of alcohol per kilogram of body weight. For example, if you're 60 kilograms, that would be about two ounces of liquor or eight ounces of wine or two beers. Okay. And then waiting two hours after consuming that to then breastfeed. Okay. All right. Okay, Jacqueline, 
So next question is, what does weaning look like? Like when should it occur? How should it occur? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? This is a very big question. So I don't think I'm going to be able to cover all of this in this question time. So I'll just try to briefly skim through. So the World Health Organization and many countries recommend breastfeeding for at least two years and beyond as long as mutually beneficial for both mother and baby. Uh, So basically, there's just a lot of research to show that exclusively breastfeeding for six months, then adding table food and continue to breastfeed for at least two years. The American Academy of Pediatrics actually was just changed theirs from one year to two years just about a year ago, um, just because the evidence showing how beneficial in that one till their second birthday, the health and wellness and growth of the baby. So if a mother and baby can continue to at least two years, that's ideal. But you don't have to stop at two years. This is a a whole nother discussion, you know, Mm -hmm. the biologically normal weaning age is actually somewhere between like two to seven years. When you say biologically normal, that's comparing human milk to other mammals with a similar milk makeup, correct? So kind of the the brain and body maturity along with the makeup of the human milk kind of puts us at a normal weaning of between two and seven years. If you were just to look at biologically. Yes, but sometimes that's not practical for whatever reasons, like um, the mother has to work or the mother gets really sick or maybe just the mother is just like I can't take this anymore or maybe it's the child one of my children actually she weaned herself she was just like nope I'm done (laughs) yeah I mean I was gonna say like it's gonna depend a lot on the mom and the situation too like for my first I became pregnant right after one and then it it was just so uncomfortable to breastfeed and of course Many moms have managed to tandem breastfeed, so to breastfeed through the pregnancy and then continue after baby number two is born. But yeah, it just wasn't really comfortable. And then with my second, my general practitioner doctor actually wanted me to try like a specific medicine that wasn't compatible with breastfeeding. And so I was like, Mm -hmm. well, let me get to at least a year, you know, before we try this. And so, yeah, I mean, you definitely have to look at your situation and I think the term you used was like mutually beneficial for both of you. So you're always weighing all the factors involved too, right? Yeah. So then exactly how to wean, it will depend on your situation, but ideally it's done slowly over a long period of time where you're slowly reducing the number of feeds or the length of feeds. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend Uh, working with a lactation consultant to be able to come up with a plan that suits both you and your baby to be able to wean in a safe way because you don't want to just drastically stop, although there are situations that does need to happen. Yeah. But generally, if at all possible, to slowly reduce your milk production because there's actually a couple reasons for that. One is... So you don't get mastitis and clogged ducts and get sick, but it also your hormones levels 
change. And so doing it slowly kind of helps your body to be able to adjust back. And so you're not like experiencing huge mood swings and things like that. Yeah. No, I remember with my fourth talking to you because I was having these horrible nightmares and you were like, oh, didn't you mention about weaning? And I was like, oh, you're right. (laughs) And so wanting to just be as gentle as possible on your body and on baby. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, yeah, not just for you, but also for the child, because this has been their life source, you know, not only nutritionally, but also like comfort and connection. And they learn through this, you know, act of breastfeeding. And so being sensitive to that, and then be able to replace breastfeeding sessions with other ways that you can connect because I mean I loved breastfeeding for longer I I'll tell you when I started breastfeeding I did not plan on breastfeeding for as long as I did but I did really learn to love it in that like it actually was easy Mm. like it was just an easy way like my child is just melting down and I'm like here let's just have some mommy milk some quiet and it was just like it would solve so many issues and then we could reset and then start over or maybe the child went to sleep and I was like there that's what you needed (laughs) (laughs) so then when when they weaned and I was like I now actually have to be creative and think of other ways to (laughs) to solve your problems but anyways I don't know. I don't know that that answers all of the weaning questions, but hopefully it just kind of gives an overview of what weaning looks like and how to approach it. And I think one more thing to note is that until age one, even though you may have started or probably have started offering solid foods, it's supposed to be like offer breast milk first, right? Mm -hmm. And then solids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then after one, you can start offering like solids first. And then having, you know, the breast milk after as kind of a filler. But until age one, you really want to be having the majority of their calories coming from the breast milk. And so not letting them get full on oatmeal or vegetables or, you know, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. making sure that they're getting most of their calories through the breast milk. Right. Yeah. And as far as like tips and tricks for weaning, I really liked the idea of like don't offer, don't refuse. And so whenever I felt Mm -hmm. like it was time I took it a little bit farther than don't offer, don't refuse. Like I would kind of not exactly refuse, but try to distract, (laughs) right? Like, yeah, yeah. So I'm like you said, this could be a whole episode on its own, like many topics we talk about, and I'm sure someday we will. But yeah, so that idea of like, you know, first, when I was ready to wean, whatever age they were, and I did different ages with my different kids, then first kind of just not offering it and waiting for them to ask and then after those initial stages, like actively trying to distract them. So like here, how about you have this Mm -hmm. favorite fruit of yours that you really like or this toy or we could we sing a song. And if they were really determined, you know, then to go ahead and breastfeed them because I didn't want to, you know, create more anxiety in them or, but it's definitely kind of a balancing. You find your way through. Yeah. And I just want to clarify that it's definitely not advised to wean before one. Like Ruth said, you don't want to be weaning or doing those things yes. until after a year because breast milk still is the primary source of calories and nutrition. Yeah. 
And if for some reason you need to, for whatever reason that might be, then those calories need to be substituted with formula. Mm -hmm. So not with other table food, not with cow's milk, but with formula, because there is a really specific makeup of nutrients and fats and everything that they need until at least age one. Yes. Even if you do find yourself in a situation where you need to wean before age one, you need to make sure that you are still meeting the minimum number of ounces in formula. Okay. Well, Jacqueline, I think like usual, we, uh, <laughs> we can talk. <laughs> we, we could go on to answer more questions, but I think that that's about enough for tonight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, always good to connect. Yep. That was a lot of fun answering those listener questions. So if you have any other questions that you want to send in, please contact us. Um, You can connect at our Instagram page at Having a Baby in China. Mm -hmm. But yeah, until next time. Until next time. Bye. Ha <laughs> ha.